Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. My guest today for Spirit in Action is Edgar Villanueva, author of Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. Some people might be satisfied to better themselves by getting into a lucrative job with money and prestige and to do the work of philanthropy, channeling hundreds of millions of dollars to well-deserving charities as part of their job. Edgar has done that good work, but doesn't stop there. Using insights from the Native American tribe he is part of, the Lumbees, he goes on to look at who, really, is being served by charities and foundations, and what is really driving the giving, and if we could do better, and he guides us to that better. This is not dry analysis, but deeply captivating storytelling through which we can learn how to make a better world. Edgar Villanueva joins us by phone. Edgar, thank you so very much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be on. I just finished reading Decolonizing Wealth, and I have to say it is one of the best written books that I've encountered, at least in the last couple of years. So I want to congratulate you on that. Wow. Thank you. I appreciate that. One of the reasons I particularly like the book is the way that you dealt with the real nitty-gritty at the same time dealing with the individual experience you've had. I mean, I, I love the way that you interweave really important principles with your personal experience. You give us a good idea of your path to philanthropy and working in that field. I don't think I got from the book why you chose to write this book. Well, you know, I come from a long line of storytellers. Being from the South, I grew up in North Carolina, and uh, being Native American, storytelling is a way that we share knowledge. So what led me to this, I think, is part of being from that type of community and then also just feeling at a certain point in time this calling inside that I needed to respond to, needed to obey, a call from my ancestors, a call from the community, and a call from this movement that I'm a part of in philanthropy to a place of betterment. And I think there's one piece you didn't mention. You mentioned, you know, this being from the South, being Native American. You also explored, at least at one point, a calling towards the ministry. I think ministers at their best are excellent storytellers. Certainly Jesus did it pretty well. Is that part of it for you too? Absolutely. So much of this all interconnects. I grew up in the church, in a Pentecostal church in North Carolina, where I first sort of experienced philanthropy, I would say, in terms of folks being generous to my family, making sure that we were taken care of. And then my mother was very involved in ministry. She actually ran a, a bus ministry that went out into the community on Sundays and picked up children for church. So I grew up very involved in the community through the church. And so there was a part of my life that I felt I wanted to give back and to help others. When I was 18 and graduated from high school, the only vehicle that I knew to do that was through the church. I didn't know about the nonprofit sector and all these different career paths. And so I went to seminary with the idea that I was going to go and be trained to go into full-time ministry so that I could give back to the community in the same way that I had received. 
I hate to jump to the end of the book, but you talk about that situation with your mother in the last chapter of the book, which I consider, by the way, the best chapter. You talk about your mother and working three jobs and just trying to wonder how she had any time for you. I mean, obviously, you said you went along with her on some of these things. But how could she be a single mother with you? How many, did, how many hours a day did you actually get to see her? <laughs> you know, um, we made it work. I sort of knew early on that she had a job to do and then I had a job to do. My responsibility was to do well in school, to stay out of trouble, and to t- sort of take care of the house. So pretty early on, I was a, became a, a latchkey kid. I think I shared in the book that by day, my mom worked at the, the DMV. And then second and third shift, she was a domestic worker, which entailed cleaning homes and taking care of elderly folks. And it was in those jobs that I often got to go with her to work and to meet people from a different part of the community, folks who had resources and wealth that were you know, paying my mom to come in and provide services in their homes. And so from early on, I was really exposed to both ends of the spectrum of the wealth gap from, you know, ourselves living uh, in poverty and coming from a very poor community to interacting with folks in our community who um, had resources. So those folks kind of became extended family. Many of them were very good to us and, and made sure that we had what we needed as a family So yeah, it sort of all kind of comes together, but uh, definitely I come from a family that worked hard and made it work. Yeah, worked hard, uh, three jobs. You said (laughs) maybe she got a couple hours of sleep. I mean, my goodness. In this country, if things were balanced, if power and merit were taken into account, there's no way you would have been living in poverty with a mother working as hard as she did including some of it, which admittedly was, I mean, your inspiration for philanthropy, right? You said she's a philanthropist in the way that she worked in the church. You know, I think, I mean, a lot of the the charity sector and the idea of, of giving back and investing in community really originated in the faith community. The church was really, for many, the first point of contact with charity. I think in this country, when we hear philanthropists, We often think of people like the Rockefellers or Henry Ford, Andrew Carnegie, and the reality is that most people of wealth in this country give a smaller percentage of their income away or don't give or not charitable at all. When you look at giving data, most folks who are giving are folks who are actually from a lower income bracket. Poor people in this country are a lot more generous, and many of those folks are giving through their faith institutions or churches in order to support communities. Well, that gets me to a key term. Northern Spirit Radio, which is the organization that brings these radio programs like Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul to you, is a 501c3. It's a charitable organization. You've worked specifically with foundations, and foundations are a subset of charitable institutions. I think you should spell out for people what the difference is, because you've been instrumental in, I guess, hundreds of millions of dollars of donations going to good causes by your work with foundations. So in the United States, we have a tax code that allows anyone basically can start a nonprofit organization or a 501c3 that's passionate about a cause and fills out the appropriate paperwork and and all of those things to become a a 501c3. Now, in order to sustain as an organization, you've got to receive donations and investment 
whether that comes from individuals, foundations, or bake sales, however you're making things meet to get the organization off the ground. Now, another part of the sector are called foundations, right? And so there are private foundations and public foundations and all different sorts, but essentially any person who has wealth in this country can start a private foundation or a fund or a donor-advised fund as a mechanism to invest in these other types of nonprofits that are doing work. Say I'm a wealthy individual that decides to start the Edgar Villanueva Foundation, that funding would be shielded from taxation, and I would be able to put that funds as set into the public coffers for tax revenue. I would start a foundation and be able to allocate those resources as I wish in whatever type of nonprofit or issue area that I want to fund. And so that is some of the loopholes and, you know, there's sort of some problematic things in the system that I call out in the book, you know, that I see as not being fair for the general public in terms of how foundations are able to, you know, are not being held accountable for how funds are being moved through the system or not being moved through the system. And maybe you better spell out the difference for us. Foundations are a subset of this nonprofit sector. Is your analysis in the book applicable to general charities as well as to foundations? Absolutely. So I talk about basically all of the players that are connected to money and the flow of resources in this country and beyond, whether that's institutions, there are dynamics of power around any institution, that it's an organization that controls the access to capital or or money. And so we're talking about banking, we're talking about impact investing, municipal bonds, foundations, But there's an entire chapter that's dedicated to nonprofits in general who are on sort of the folks that are looking for resources, that are fundraising, that are, you know, begging for resources. But also even beyond these organizations, I think just as individuals, all of us have a history and an orientation to money that we should examine because, you know, we are all contributing capital and putting money into the system. And, you know, I think how that shows up in our spending, but also how that shows up in our charitable giving is something to be explored. You mentioned how your mother and you ended up being exposed to the different ends of society, the rich and living in poverty, essentially. The first section of Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom, to Heal Divides and Restore Balance, the first section you call Where It Hurts. There you talk about the field hands and people working in the house and the overseers and so on. Where do you see yourself as having grown up in that kind of a hierarchy? I definitely have probably played all of the roles in that in that plantation analogy. I do use a, a plantation analogy, one, because my very first job in philanthropy was literally on a plantation. I work for the estate of R.J. Reynolds in North Carolina, who, of course, is the tobacco tycoon, where there's a number of foundations that were started by the family. The one that I worked at was located on what is now a beautiful plot of land that's owned by Wake Forest University, and the uh, the mansion has been turned into the Renolda Art Museum. But, you know, coming from being in the South, being a person of color, indigenous, from a community whose ancestors were enslaved, you know, genocide, actually driving every day into work onto a plantation actually was quite triggering in ways that I didn't quite understand in the beginning. But, you know, there's a lot of dynamics in play. A lot of people of color who work in this space, there's very few of us, I should say, first and foremost. It's a very white dominant kind of space. 
But those of us who have been sort of granted access into this sort of private bubble of wealth and privilege sort of have had water cooler conversations through the years where we kind of joke about being on the plantation and, you know, our jobs are to help actually preserve wealth and legacy and be good representations of the wealth of the family. So it's something that's sort of been a private conversation in terms of those dynamics that in this book I bring to the light and I call out some of that brokenness that I think needs to be revealed in order for us as a sector to begin to make some of the changes that I think would be better for the community, but also just better for us as human beings and as a sector. You know, when you, Edgar Villanueva, when you stepped up the ladder, I guess maybe you were a field hand at once and house slaves and overseer, when you stepped up the ladder, you said that there were some portions of your experience which came back, that the feelings came back. You've got actually trauma from being in such a situation. Does that, you think, continue as one continues to rise? I mean, I think of Ben Carson, right? Here's a person of color whose background, I mean, he's got to be carrying some baggage from that. What happens when you become part of the wealthy? I mean, is that even possible? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, so I definitely think that closeness and proximity to wealth has an influence on you. So I'm still not independently wealthy, although I have been someone who has had a key to the treasure box to other people's wealth. But I do think that, yes, I have climbed the ladder, and compared to many people back in my community in North Carolina, I would appear to be doing pretty well. I think that there is a dynamic and there is such a concentration of privilege and power in this space that it causes people to behave in a certain way. If you are a person who comes from a community that historically has not had wealth or power, there are some things that are great about it, right? Like I remember my first job at the foundation in North Carolina. I was right out of grad school. I had worked in in a nonprofit for a number of years, sort of living paycheck to paycheck. And all of a sudden, I was in a a pretty well-paying job. But more so than the salary I was receiving, the immediate status that I earned because I was associated with this foundation. I was now representing decades of wealth and legacy, and for many, I was the door to have access to those resources. And so I remember my very first Christmas in this new job, I received somewhere around like 200 Christmas cards, including one from the governor of North Carolina, (laughs) which I think I still have somewhere. You know, I could not believe that I received a Christmas card from the governor of North Carolina. That feeling of like, wow, I'm on the inside now. I now have power I now have access to resources. Everything that you say and do, when you work in a foundation, we kind of have a joke that your jokes become funnier, you become better looking, (laughs) you know, uh, you don't know who your real friends are. And that's really true, regardless of who you are, but especially as a, a Native person coming from a very different background, it's very easy. I've seen other colleagues of color who have become kind of drunken over that power and have acted in ways to maintain that power, taking on, I would say, sort of the behavior of the oppressor. And, you know, to the analogy in the book about the plantation, you talk about the overseers. Back during times of slavery and plantations, the overseers who were often the house slaves many times were people of color who were brought indoors. There's lots of accounts of those other, you know, sort of house slaves those overseers being a lot more cruel to the field hands yeah. than, um, yeah. than the actual masters. 
And there's something about, well, I have some power now and I will act to whatever extent to maintain that power, which is internalized oppression, which I talk about in the book. A very, very sad state of being, but, you know, all of this, the dynamics of white supremacy that exist in the system can impact some people in that way. Definitely. So I wonder about people like Ben Carson, if he's buying into that or is he denying some part? Is he confronting the true dynamics of the situation? He doesn't tend to speak as extremely offensively in some outwards ways as Donald Trump seems to do, but it does seem to me that he kind of denies his roots in order to say how good he is now and the part that the society had in terms of getting him there. Yeah. You know, I think for many of us, even for me, I'm the first person in my family to graduate from high school. Definitely the first to go to college and land in a career, have a career path that many would say is successful. And I think it's really easy sometimes for us to look at our own hard work and say, well, wow, I did it. And if I did it, anyone can. And to sort of, you know, buy into that bootstraps mentality and to think that others who have not, quote unquote, worked as hard, maybe don't want the success or whatever. And, you know, there's probably a period of time in my life early on that I thought that way because of how I was raised. You know, I think I was raised in a church that we know that faith without works is dead, the Bible says, right? But there was a lot of focus on the works and feeling like possibly that I needed to earn the grace and the the love of Christ. You know, a part of that, I think, was like a a spiritual thing for me, but also I, I had very strong coping mechanisms to overcome a lot of the trauma in my life and channel that into education. And it wasn't until later in life where I looked back at my other family members and wondered, like, what was different? Like, why was I the one to get out? Why was I the one to graduate from college? And understand that small things like the fact that my mother moved away from our community to the city of Raleigh when I was five years old and the types of schools that I was able to go to because of that choice that were far superior than the schools back in the Robinson County where the Lumbee tribe was. So just that exposure to the type of quality education, very small things like that really gave me an advantage. And so you look at the series of advantages that I begin to have Even my mother working as a domestic worker and me being exposed to all of these different professional folks who I often was able to have conversations with and begin to understand like, wow, these folks went to college and if I want to be successful, I need to go to college. You know, people in my community back home did not have the same exposure or opportunities. And so, yeah, that bootstraps mentality, I think, is something that it's kind of easy to get self-righteous about your accomplishments and not remember that everyone doesn't have the same opportunities or exposure or even the same capacity to deal with trauma. You know, I hesitate to take us from the rich information that you've included in Decolonizing Wealth, but I want to talk a little bit about my own situation. I happen to be a person of peach color, right? And I'm a European-based person, as far as I know. But I happen to grow up in a lower-income family. Maybe you'd say upper-lower class or lower-middle class. And I grew up as a member of a family with 12 kids, and my mother died when I was nine. So I probably fit in this lower demographic, although, as you can tell from my speech, I'm at least college-educated, right? And I'm the only one out of the 12 in our family to do that. So 
I have a sister who refers to me as the white sheep of the family, alcoholism and everything else going on. My point being that sometimes we draw the lines based on color. And I noticed in the book that you start with your experience, which is rich, which we've been hearing a little bit about. But then you also talk about the general experience of people of color who are disproportionately in the lower classes in this country. We could just say the lower classes and not refer to color. Why is it advantageous or preferable to particularly highlight that? And I'm keeping in mind the subtitle of your book is Indigenous Wisdom, which I think doesn't apply to all people of color. It, you've got a special experience being part of the Lumbee Nation. Absolutely. So I do lift up communities of color, people of color, indigenous people, particularly in this book due to the, you know, as we're talking about resourcing and investment, because historically those communities have been the most oppressed in terms of their access to an ability to build wealth. When you look at the history of colonization in this country, you know, stolen land from indigenous folks, genocide, most people of color had a significant role to play historically in helping to build the wealth of this country, but have not had the same opportunities to benefit from that wealth. For example, in philanthropy, you can look at the, you know how many of these large foundations were started, many of them through industries and that like the R.J. Reynolds family who owned slaves and you know who worked in those tobacco fields and as a result that family now is sitting on tremendous amounts of wealth. However, now these same organizations that are led by people of color working in communities of color are having to apply to these foundations for resources. And when you look at the data, you see that a very, very small percentage of where those grant dollars are flowing are touching communities of color. And so that's something that I feel that is very unfair that I call out in the book. In fact, in looking at grant-making data specifically from foundations, the highest percentage of resources that have been invested in communities of color from foundations is only 8%. And so that's really unjust. And so I I put that out as like this, you know, communities of color and indigenous folks are folks who have probably been harmed the most and traumatized the most in this country in terms of how wealth has been accumulated on the backs of a lot of our ancestors. And yet we are marginalized in terms of having access now to wealth and resources and capital in our communities. But your point about poor white folks in this country and their experience, I think, is something that's really valuable to bring to the conversation because what we see happening historically with colonization, when you study colonization in our history there, which I got to do in writing this book, it was very fascinating. But colonization not only traumatized communities of color and indigenous folks in this country, but there's also trauma that exists in white communities because of colonization, right? And so colonization has this mantra of dividing, separating, conquering, exploiting folks. Colonization and those dynamics are something that are just in the fabric and the DNA of our economic system in this country. It puts us in a place to think from a a scarcity mentality, right? And so often when I start having these conversations, people kind of get afraid that I'm asking for all the wealthy folks in this country to turn over their money to people of color. (laughs) And that's not what I'm asking folks to do. I'm asking folks to really understand that there has been a major discrepancy 
that things have not been equitable. And not to think from a scarcity mentality, but from an abundance mentality. There's a lot of money. There's $800 billion sitting in the coffers of foundations. There's $70 trillion moving through capital markets in this country. And so their resources are vast. I think there's more than enough for us all to thrive in a very mutual way. But we are often pitted against each other as poor white people and people of color in this country because that's intended for us to feel that way. But we really need to look at who is really hoarding those resources and find ways collectively to try to reclaim those resources for our communities. Yeah, I'm thankful that you addressed that last part in particular because I think that does answer one of my concerns. One of the ways we can see society is in terms of, say, people of color versus whites, or we can see Republicans versus Democrats. But oftentimes, the most essential dynamic is the ultra-rich versus even middle class or lower class, that kind of thing. I want to remind people that you are listening to Spirit in Action. NorthernSpiritRadio.org is our website, 13-plus years of our programs for free listening and download. There's a place for comments. There's links. So when you want to track down Edgar Villanueva and his book, Decolonizing Wealth, for more information, you can follow the link to decolonizingwealth.com, and we'll get some more information on where to go when we speak to Edgar as we go on. I do want to remind you to post a comment when you visit our website, northernspiritradio.org, and also there's a donate button. This is 100% funded by listener support. So if you donate, that's how this full-time work can be supported. I also want to remind you that even more important to support your alternative news sources, and particularly I, I like community radio stations where they provide news and music that you just won't get on mainstream sources. So please start by supporting them, and then if you have some shekels left over, support Northern Spirit Radio. I was going to ask you a little bit more, Edgar, about the websites where I can, is it all linked from decolonizingwealth.com or are there other sources people should be looking at? Yeah, everything's linked there and the book is available anywhere books are sold. And of course, I love supporting local bookstores if if folks want to go out to the bricks and mortar, you know. The alternative sources of media are just so crucial. When I was talking to Melinda Lowry, I was asking, is there a Lumbee radio station around Robeson (laughs) County? And she said there isn't exactly, but I think maybe that's another one that needs some philanthropy in its direction. Absolutely. But anyway, let's get back to some more of the issues. A lumber of them are philosophical, and I really do not want to short you, Edgar, in talking about the possible solutions in redressing this. Because as you just said earlier, you're not just saying to all the rich people, give up your money, give it to the minorities. Although there are some steps in that direction, which you point out that I, I think are brilliant in terms of how to do this for past injuries And it's not even pass. One of the best pages in the book is where you spend an entire page talking about the dynamics that continue this imbalance, particularly with respect to people of color or indigenous people. Yeah, so um, I think you're referring to just a lot of things that are happening present day because I'm using this frame of colonization or that word colonization, which for many people brings up something that happened 500 years ago or 200 years ago. And it feels like a a term just from our history books, but colonization is actually something that is happening present day. We're not living in a post-colonial society. 
I had the opportunity just a few weeks ago to be in Puerto Rico where they are feeling the effect of colonization in real time. So post-hurricane, you know, the indigenous folks on the island are, are feeling pushed out, are feeling like they're being taken advantage of. Financial institutions are really failing the community. And so there's real-time exploitation that's happening. When you think about the dynamics I mentioned earlier that are inherent in colonization, you begin to see that under this mantra of divide, conquer, these things are still happening, right? Families are being separated, children put into cage. You know, all of these things that are happening even in, you know, this week where I think you see some acts of hatred happening in communities are all kind of coming from this place of colonization and that fabric of our history in this country where there's a superiority complex that some have and we've bought into this idea of, you know, again, scarcity and that there are other groups who are taking away things that rightly belong to us. That type of thinking that, I, you know, I call like colonized thinking or in the book I call the colonizer virus that has become a part of our bodies and our thinking and but also our institutions and our policies and our systems is something that we have to uncover in order to begin thinking about a healing process. I really liked that phrase, colonizer virus, that you use throughout the book. Could you say a few more words about it? Because certainly for the Europeans coming in and taking over North America, it applies. But you're speaking of it also in a wider sense. It's it's kind of a competitive or me first, individualist, the toughest dog wins. I don't know. Could you fill in what you mean by colonizer virus? So I use the term virus as a metaphor, I mean, I use the body as a metaphor throughout the book as well, especially, you know, as it pertains to healing. But, you know, a virus is something that cannot be seen and that is just kind of spread, spread rapidly. And a virus is also something, right, that mutates and gets smarter over time. And so colonization begins as a conquest and exploitation motivated by greed and fear, but over time, it has begun to show up in just different kinds of ways, and especially when it pertains to money in the realms of wealth, philanthropy, and investment. The name of the book, Decolonizing Wealth, which is intentionally a provocative name, I often have to kind of explain what the word decolonization means to folks in order to really understand the, sort of the colonizer virus and how to begin to heal from that. So briefly, I'll just say that, you know, decolonization if we take that word quite literally, it means to undo colonization. Decolonization would mean that the land that was stolen, the sovereignty over uh, the land and the resources, its social structures and traditions, all of that would be granted back to those from whom it was stolen, and the autonomy of Native folks would be reinstated in this country, which in, in a lot of ways is something that is unrealistic when you think about decolonizing that way quite literally in the 21st century. It gets kind of stuck if you imagine that as a political process. So the way that I think of decolonization is to think of it as actually a process of healing because colonization, this virus that we're talking about, does violate us and it leaves us traumatized. And again, it can have that impact on us whether we are the colonizer or the colonized. And so the process of decolonization that I outline in the book is thinking about how can we collectively stop the cycles of abuse, begin a healing process for ourselves, and expand the possibilities for the future. 
Do you list a number of the steps to that? I don't know if these steps are original to you. I thought in part they mimicked at least some of the steps of the 12-step process, famous from AA. The steps you list are grieve, apologize, listen, relate, represent, invest, repair. I'm pretty sure invest isn't part of the 12 steps, but where did these ones particularly originate from and what stage are you at? Yeah, so I, through a process of reading research, but also lots of conversations, I had the opportunity when writing this book to spend a lot of time in my community in North Carolina talking to my elders, and not just, you know, indigenous folks, but also other folks who have folks with wealth, wealthy white people who have had to sort of grapple and come to terms with the messiness of their privilege. And I just sort of landed on these steps from my own personal experience, but also thinking about sort of models of restorative justice that you hear about sometimes in, in, you know, in sort of criminal justice reform arenas. That's a model that was pulled right out of indigenous communities as a way of restoration and forgiveness. I will say that coming up with seven steps It was interesting. This was a place with my publisher where we had a little back and forth because it's really easy in some ways to think, oh, there's only seven steps to healing. And when you think about that after, you know, sort of 500 years of history and traumatization, (laughs) it's a little oversimplified. Also, I did not want to put something out necessarily that seemed like a very linear process because this is a very circular process and folks may enter into a place at a different step and we may have to repeat steps. And it's something that really is a lifelong work. We are drinking from the water of like, you know, sort of like white supremacy and colonization and trauma. We are just, it's just in the airways. And so to really be repaired from all of this, it's a process that we have to be actively engaged in on a regular basis. And I say that we have to, you know, sort of get booster shots. And I'm no exception from that. You know, I work in this field with, again, concentrated wealth and privilege and very white dominant frames and mindsets about how funds are deployed into the community. And so this is a process that I have to, when I'm beginning to sort of assimilate to a way of thinking about this that doesn't feel right to my spirit, to my culture, to my values, these are ways that I engage with to reorient my thinking and shift my mindset around money. I want to go off on a somewhat challenging tangent, or maybe it's not a tangent. And this comes from my experience having lived in Africa. I've been an observer of Africa. Certainly, most African nations were colonized and have to deal with the trauma related to that. But my experience living in Togo as a Peace Corps volunteer for a couple years I saw people in power using colonization as a pretext for their own domination and damage to the average people. And in particular, at one point, there was an assassination attempt on the dictator, the president where I lived. Word went out that everybody should protest the evil colonists who supposedly had put this Togolese man up to an attempt to kill the president or the dictator. So I had people in my village where I was the one white person walking down the street saying, down with the colonists, down with the colonists. And I don't for a minute think it was colonists who put it up to this. I mean, this was this guy specifically in pursuit of his own power and getting rid of the dictator. So 
I've seen it used as a, a pretext, and there certainly has been all of this damage caused by colonists. But sorting out that difference, because I think at one level or another, we are all colonists. That includes all Africans. I mean, it happened some time ago. We're still witness to, in Israel and Palestine, the Israelis, Jews, coming back to the area, say God gave it to them 2,000 years ago, and they were kicked out by colonists. And so they are oppressing the Palestinians based on the fact that other people colonized this area that was originally Jewish. So I know that's a long ramble. I don't expect you to solve all of the world's problems, but <laughs> I just gave you some more to put on your plate. Anything you can respond to that will be appreciated, Edgar. Sure, absolutely. You know, it's so complex. Like there is something, it seems like there's just something in human nature, you know, historically and but also in, in, in current day, right, where folks want to be on top. I think that this is taking this back to my roots of Christianity for a minute. A lot of folks misquote the, the scripture that says, they say that money is the root of all evil, but actually we know that the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. And so it's not necessarily that any way a life is bad or having resources is a bad thing, but it's that intention of how the greed of wanting to you know, amass resources and the types of behavior that can come when we put the love of money above the love of mankind or of humans or the love of money over people. And so that's what happens in a lot of our communities and different places around that greed and that motivation. And then often that is justified by misconceptions of that I'm superior to you because of my religion or I'm superior to you because of my skin color. And so these are all things are just that are just not true, right? We've bought in as different societies uh, different ideas of how to justify our actions ultimately because of the love of money and because of greed. That's the only way that folks were able historically in present day to create, to actually act on some of these terrible things that are happening is because of our history and just all of these things that lead us to believe that we are superior above others. If you tuned in just recently, folks, we are speaking with Edgar Villanueva. He is author of a book, Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal, Divides, and Restore Balance. And he's speaking to us today from New York City. He's originally from North Carolina, the Lumbee Indians. Robeson County, I think, is the best locale to narrow it down, although they've dispersed widely across the United States. Anyway, we're speaking to Edgar about his book, Decolonizing Wealth. We're not going to be able to get to all of the wealth of ideas and insights in the book. So I really highly recommend this is a very readable and very rich book. So go out and get Decolonizing Wealth, his website, decolonizingwealth.com. The link's on nordenspiritradio.org. Let me just try and touch on a few of the things that you hit along the way, Edgar. One of them is you use the phrase, listening in color, which I really loved. I'm advocate of a process, and I've used this in Quaker environments and wider, called listening in tongues. Instead of listening for the debate point, 
listening at some deeper level where I can hear the language you're speaking and I can hear what's really behind what you're saying. Could you explain listening in color as you use it? So listening is one of the seven steps of healing that I outline in the second half of the book. And this really came about because after 14 years of doing this work, you know, the work of philanthropy, supporting wealthy families and moving resources into communities, we often ask folks how we could be better. What should we be doing as grant makers or funders to be better partners? The number one thing that always comes back is that folks say that we don't listen. And so just beyond that sort of transactional relationship around investment, I think in order for us to really get to a place of healing as members of this community, we have to really get to a place where we can we can listen to each other. I came up with the term listening in color because I think that it's a superpower that folks who have privilege and have power can actually wield in order to change the status quo. Because again, most of the folks who are in power inside of the institutions that control wealth happen to be white, most of them white men. And so it's very easy when you sit in a place of power even to be sort of pretending to listen, to not have to listen and not be held accountable. And so you hear the stories, of course, of some of these philanthropists that are moving, that go into communities and invest millions of dollars into different types of strategies around what they think is needed in a community or what they think that certain uh, populations need without any type of engagement with the community, without actually listening. And so I believe that many folks, especially folks like in my community, Native Americans, we're very resilient. We've survived for hundreds of years despite of a lot of challenges. And we have really good ideas and wisdom around what it takes to sustain and thrive in the community. And we're very open to partnerships, but we want to be heard. We want to be at the table with instead of having things done to us. And so listening in color, again, is just a, is just a, I feel like a act of decency. And, and it involves really sitting and, and not talking <laughs> and not interrupting and taking the focus back to ourselves with quick advice, but to actually be open to a place of curiosity and be willing to change our opinions based on new information that we might receive. And some more of the wisdom that you bring from your personal experience has to do with giving. Again, since I've lived in Africa, I've traveled. When I travel, I don't go to the tourist spots. My preference is to meet people and have experiences, see what things are like locally. Having had that experience, I would say something, I'll amplify something that you said earlier in the interview, Edgar. Poor people are often the most generous. I have never experienced hospitality in the USA as generous as what I've experienced in small villages in Africa. It's so disproportionate to what we're used to thinking of as generosity in the U.S. You talk about the difference between what you've experienced as a Native American, and there's some connection, I think, also to your religious background, but the kind of generosity where you would never lack for food. Could you amplify for people who maybe have not been disabused of their knowledge that the rich people are the most generous. Again, there's data that really backs that up. In fact, reports that come out every year, an organization called Giving USA looks at um, how, you know, tax forms and databases to assess the level of giving and what folks are giving to. And by far, most poor folks are giving away a higher percentage of their income. 
And so, you know, I would say the real philanthropists of this country are the working class and poor folks who are giving every day. The other thing to look at, even beyond that, that's giving data, right? That's hard numbers. But there's often other types of giving that's happening in poor communities and in communities of color that is something that is like actually not measured. And that's giving of our time and giving of our talents and just that generosity. You know, in my community growing up, if someone that was sick in our community, everyone cooks food and, you know, you take over a cake and, you know, you pick their kids up from school, everyone just kind of jumps in and, and takes care of one another. That's philanthropy that is not measured in a traditional way. I know that beyond the percentage of philanthropy that's happening with dollars, there's even more generosity that's happening where folks are are taking care of each other in a a very reciprocal way in lower-income communities. And you talk about, Edgar, the roots of this in Native American practice. And again, there's a lot of different Native Americans but you refer to the potlatch principle. Yeah, it was, I moved out to Seattle a number of years ago from North Carolina, and there's a great organization there called the Potlatch Fund, which is a Native American-run foundation. The entire board is Native American, and they support Native organizations and tribes in the Pacific Northwest region. The name Potlatch comes from a really amazing tradition of some tribes in that region who back in the day, a tribal leader was highly esteemed, not based off, you know, how many battles he won or how much he had accumulated and some of the more Western maybe ways of of thinking about success. Success was actually measured in, uh, at the time of harvest, how many potlatches you had. And a potlatch was basically when you collected all of your harvest Whatever excess that you have, you were able to have a potlatch, which meant you gave away more than you needed for your community. And so that spirit of generosity that exists in a lot of Native traditions like that is something that I bring into this book as a solution. One, because healing is such a big part of our community. We have a lot of trauma in Native communities, and so we talk about healing all the time. But also our approach and worldview around a really reciprocal nature of taking care of one another is something that we really need to, we could benefit from in the U.S. and understanding charity. And it's not a transactional, I'm going to write a check for you over there but not have a relationship with you. But it's more of an approach of like, we are all connected. You are my brother. You're my sister. Your suffering is my suffering. Your thriving is my thriving. And I'm going to give and take care of you because I know in my time of need that you would do the same for me. That type of philanthropy versus a transactional model is something that is much closer to nature, to how we're wired as human beings, and really allows uh, spirituality and love and human emotion to be a part of this work. That's stuff that has been kind of taken out of this as we've become institutionalized with our giving. I have to admit, Edgar, that I'm feeling completely insufficient in terms of being able to convey the richness of all that you talk about in decolonizing wealth. You've just touched on a couple points which you address in considerable more depth in the book, and I think richly so, so that people will not just see a two-dimensional idea about what philanthropy means or generosity or charity or relationship. You deal with it at such a beautiful length, and I'm really feeling inadequate in terms of conveying that fully to people. I do think that more people read this book, the better off our country will be, the more healing will be potential in our nation. 
I wanted to ask you one more thing. Coming from Pentecostal background, and I think you identify more as Christian in general, less Pentecostal these days, one of the things that I've been dumbfounded by, I do not find the current administration as being very much in line with many of the insights and goals that you've been holding up. And I'm not trying to get you in trouble by having you talk about political things, but specifically religious things. There's a whole number of people who identify strongly as Christian, maybe evangelical Christian, who the percentage is going in support of policies that I think are not matching the direction that I think you're advocating for. Why is that when, as I see it at least, and as you've already quoted, the Bible and the roots of Christianity would seem to lead us in a very different direction? I'm missing out something vital, and I'm I'm trying to understand. Yeah, I'm trying to understand a lot of this myself. <laughs> you know, I will say that I think a lot of the the dynamics that we've talked about that are in our system— also, we find them in the church. We find them in our faith institutions because wherever there are people, there are going to be some imperfections, right? And so I think that it's very easy, especially for the particular brand of Christianity that I was raised in, the Pentecostal church, it could be very easy to assume that we are right and that everyone else is wrong. And to have such a conviction about that that closes our minds in my younger years, I remember being pretty radical about that, that there was only one way, there was one faith and one way, and that it was really up to me to save everyone because everyone who wasn't like me was just destined to eternal damnation. And that was really stressful to grow up with that, <laughs> with that type of responsibility. There's so many things that, you know, I think that we, as people of faith, we have to really take our own journeys and really dig deep into our own spirituality to get to a place of, like, what really makes sense, and are we really living in compliance with the full teachings of Christ if you're a Christian, right? Because we were so adamant in the way that I was raised about certain particulars in the Bible, but there were other pieces of the Bible that were about love and grace and forgiveness that we did not emphasize. And I saw a a meme just this week where someone had posted something along the lines of, you know, love all people or love thy neighbor. And then this is like something from God where it says, you know, I'll take care of sorting out everything later. (laughs) We think that it's, it's on us sometimes to do God's bidding and to sort things out. And even in the times of the biblical days, right, there were the Pharisees and those who were sort of the elite and felt like it was their place to judge and criticize. So I just, you know, I invite folks in this book, but also right now to hold up a mirror and do some really deep reflection and gazing at our own spirit and intentions and understand that first and foremost, I mean, the first commandment is to love thy neighbor. And if we are supporting any policy or any action or any type of uh, narrative in this country that is perpetuating the dynamics of separation and hate, that is not of Christ. That is not of God, in my opinion. And so we, even in faith institutions, need to do that examination and find ways to meet folks in the middle. And, you know, I always remember in the church that I was raised, there was a, a major emphasis on evangelism and reaching others and reaching the lost, which is why my mom was in this blessed ministry. We were all in different types of ministries because there was such an urgency about reaching folks who had not yet found Christ. One thing that I do remember that I take with me as a positive 
is that in doing that work, our, our pastor encouraged us to maintain the joy and maintain happiness because regardless of the type of doctrine or whatever we were taking out into the world, if we were sourpusses or angry or not full of joy, like how could we sell this gospel to anyone else? You know, that's something that I think I have maintained and I've kept that with me that in all of this struggle and all of the things that are happening politically that are so divisive, to really maintain hope and humanity and, and love for everyone and trying to keep some level of joy in my life so that the light that I am trying to shine, it is something that folks would actually want to receive. The last thing I'll say, getting a little political, one major lesson for me after writing this book is after the election, I was pretty depressed because the policies in this administration did not reflect a lot of my values and what I felt like was in the best interest of, of most people. I spent some time in talking with an elder about how I felt about it, and she reminded me that regardless of how people vote, regardless of political affiliation, that again, that indigenous Lakota value of all my relations, that we are all related. And I think that ultimately most people in this country are well-meaning and mean no harm to others, but folks are just not educated. They're not enlightened to the decisions that they're making. Sometimes they are following at, like sheep, you know, following and kind of voting in ways that it seems like the majority of their congregations or the faith leaders might be voting. But we have to try the spirit and, and actually do our own homework and understand the impact of the decisions that we're making in that ballot box and who is being impacted and ask ourselves, you know, about the least of them among us, how the least of them among us are being impacted, and let that be our guide in terms of how we show up in the political process. Well, folks, there's so much more we could talk about with Edgar Villanueva about his book, Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance, website decolonizingwealth.com. There really is so much that I loved in this book, Edgar, and I'm sorry that we don't have time for all of it. I do hope people will read it and go further and deeper. I think you've at least provided rich information for the conversation. If people will wrestle with this, I think our nation will be led in a better direction. So thank you for your work. I mean, having participated in hundreds of millions of dollars going in helpful, growing, healing directions for our country. Thanks for the growth in how we can do that in a better way. There's very practical suggestions for folks in the book, as well as personal experience, as well as a systems overview. It's all in there. Please read it, folks. And thank you, Edgar, for writing the book, doing the work, and coming here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much. I enjoyed the conversation. And folks, remember to go to decolonizingwealth.com or just follow the link from nordenspiritradio.org. And we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every